I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It was Saturday, October 5, 1996, and the Australian Rugby League media was in a frenzy as the ramifications of News Limited's court win sunk in. The possibility of clubs defecting to Super League and the promise of a split competition in 1997 had the ARL in crisis and in the flurry of wild speculation, seemingly anything was in play. This is part two of The Appeal, the 31st chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm wonderful. How are you? Pretty good. This is the end of season two of the Super League War. It's been a long road and there's still so much of the journey ahead, but I am feeling a slight sense of accomplishment to make it to the end of season 1996 and our second season. It feels like twice the action in this one, (laughs) twice the uh, drama or something. Well, the drama has definitely entered a new phase, so let's just get straight into it. So we covered the court case in part one of this chapter. Now we're going to look at the fallout from that court case. So we're progressing in time exactly one day forward to October 5, where the papers were full of intrigue and stories about what was going to happen now that you know Super League had been decided. So I thought we'd just spend some time breaking down that fallout and what it all meant. And we'll start with the club. So I'm just going to give a little opening setup, just a basic state of the game, how each club was positioned following Super League's successful appeal. So credit to Steve Mascord for this. He wrote a lengthy article on the 5th of October in the Sydney Morning Herald, breaking down this very same thing. So I've leaned heavily on that article for this opening segment, as well as, you know, adding my own little thoughts. So, uh, and obviously I want to get yours as well. So I've broken down the 22 clubs now that, you know, the Rams and Mariners were in the fold. So I've broken down the 22 clubs into basically how they were positioned as a result of the court case. So the first category, which I'm not going to talk about at length, is clubs that were in a great position. So this was the Broncos, Raiders, Sharks, Dogs, and Cowboys. They were Super League clubs secure in their future who were now ready to move on and get excited about the new comp. So pretty obvious there how they were feeling on the Saturday morning. In terms of being alive, this was the Rams and Mariners. We were going to see them in in action now. So just a little aside on that, I kind of feel happiest for these clubs more than anyone else, especially like the players and coaches who, you know, took a chance on these clubs only for it to fall apart at the start of 1996, to now, you know, have that opportunity to get it going. It must have been a great feeling. The Mariners did so well with so little. It was just a really good effort. Yeah, yeah. And we've certainly got a lot of talk about the Mariners in our next season. But for now, it's just 
good for them to be alive following the court win. But in Adelaide there, you got the Rams. Um, what happened to the Adelaide Aces? How do they stand? <laughs> in the third category is one of relief. So firstly, the Warriors, who you could say that they should be in that first year of being in a great position. Now their future is secured. Uh, but it more has to do with the fact that they were always the most tenuous Super League club. There was division within the club as to whether they should stay in Super League. There was always the talk that they were going to you know, go back to the ARL. This was finally the decisiveness they could get because it's like, we've won the court case, now we know what's happening. We can just press on ahead for 1997. The Reds were also feeling relief. They were hemorrhaging money, unlikely to be included in the ARL competition in the wake of a Super League loss. So with this court win, they'd earned an admittedly brief, uh, but all the same, a reprieve for the year, and they knew that they'd be playing for 1997. It's funny that hemorrhaging money is a, it's a classic rugby league term, but I mean, every club hemorrhages money, just to what extent? <laughs> yeah, and I think when you do see that phrase used, you know it's serious because <laughs> it's a term that could be applied much more liberally than it is. So when you see someone's hemorrhaging money, there's serious trouble. Also in a precarious position and got a bit of a relief with the court win was the Panthers. So they were hadn't been successful on field in a while, were drawing very small crowds, despite you know the Panthers Leagues Club giving them, you'd think, some financial security. They were just in a very precarious position and they were viewed as cannon fodder in the wake of any coming together between the two camps. So as it turned out, the best thing Super League did for the Panthers was to buy them time. As it turned out, they had a great crop of players coming through, which would ultimately lead to 2003, but were always near the bottom of the scrap heap at this point of the war. You know, always talked about as you know, merging with this team or that team, or they're going to be folded in a compromise. So the court win probably for a start saved a merger with Parramatta or, you know, maybe Wests. But basically it gave them the time to get a more secure footing heading in to the rationalisation at the end of 1997 and 1998. Just on that, I wanted to bring up the one fallacy of the Super League war that gets trotted out all the time, which is that if you're a Sydney club that went to Super League, then you were saved and you were going to stand alone. I think it's easy to think that as that's the way it's happened. But, you know, if you're a Tigers fan or a Steelers fan or whoever, and you're just automatically thinking, we should have gone to Super League because we'd still be here now if we had. I think with the Panthers in particular, there's a lot of luck involved in them surviving the war as a standalone club. Like they were always near the bottom of the criteria and had a few things go their way that helped them. But I think there's a scenario where they quite easily could have gone. So we'll turn to the ARL clubs. And quite a few of them are in the same bracket, which is keeping their options open. And we're going to be discussing the ramifications of this at length, you know, in the first section of this episode. But just to set it up at the start, so the Roosters were one club that was talked about as a potential Super League target and maybe the least likely of the ARL clubs to stick solid. And it's remarkable how quickly the Roosters made themselves a force and someone with a seat at the table. Like, can you imagine even in like 93, 1994, if this happened and suddenly it's like, oh, the Roosters, you know, they're holding the cards. They could go to Super League. It's like just within a couple of years, 
they get Politis, they get Gould, they get Freddie. Suddenly they're like this stable power that, you know, is a jewel in the crown for either side. It's hilarious to me that used cars are the foundation of that success. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so Manly were in a similar positioning in that they were a strong ARL club and they were talked about a lot as a, a Super League option as well at this time. It's impossible to see happening for reasons that should be obvious, but we'll get into if they're not. Parramatta were probably the only club for whom nothing was off the table, whether that was jumping ship to Super League, merging or jumping ship and merging. It seemed that the Parramatta administration was willing to discuss anything. And I've got to give them some credit for this, like for being one of the few clubs able to see the writing on the wall. So it's ironic that as other clubs were dragged into mergers, the club may be most willing to engage the idea ultimately stood alone. Norths were also considered a strong Super League target as they were in a good position geographically, were a force on field, and at that moment were considered strong financially and the other team was St George who St George moving to Melbourne with Super League was on fait accompli terms at this point in the war <laughs> there's one club that I've got in a group of its own and that's Newcastle and that is in a vulnerable position which is strange to think of them in this way given how pivotal they were to the ARL and obviously with the success of 1997 how much that did to lend the ARL credibility. But they were considered on very shaky ground due to the fact that they had poor finances. They had, you know, the vultures circling to poach the Johns brothers and, and any other decent player off contract. And then on top of this, with the Mariners emerging, they were now considered a viable entity. Well, it's insane that they could be on shaky terms. The one team town in a rugby league heartland, it's unbelievable. We've talked about it before, but I still can't believe it. I think it was maybe a failure of the media to not predict just how categorically the Mariners would be rejected by the Newcastle public. But I could have told you that as a 15-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing that they thought it would work. So the Knights were obviously a key piece of the puzzle and you know the difference between the ARL being the pub comp and still being able to talk about a reach outside of Sydney but the Knights were considered either they're going to have to merge with the Mariners or something else is going to happen, but they were considered in a vulnerable state. The next lot I'm calling the merge or die category. So you had the Steelers who were broke, small crowds, little appeal outside Wollongong, and really the time for Illawarra standing alone had passed once they aligned with the ARL in 1995. Which I know we've talked about it before, and it's easy to say if they'd have followed Graham Murray, they would have been in a stronger position. But I do have some sympathy for the Steelers board because they weren't offered a solo franchise in the initial talks. If they'd assigned at that point in April 1995, they probably would have gotten the solo franchise eventually because not enough other teams went. But hmm. I don't think they were given enough assurances that this is your path to stay in Wollongong and stay viable. So I don't blame the Steelers board too much. But anyway, this is the position they found themselves in 1996. Uh, Tigers and Souths both had no Super League prospects, were on the chopping block for sacrifice if compromise came. There was already merger talks between them during the year, which we're going to get into. Uh, but basically, their cards have been marked by this point. And the Magpies, I feel that all the success of 1996 and the hope for the future 
was effectively washed away by the verdict. I think once that came down, they were basically on borrowed time. And the final category uh, I've called Merge and I, which <laughs> is the Crushers and the Chargers, who... It's so funny. You would have thought in the wake of the court case, the Crushers and the Chargers would have been especially important to the ARL, but they just remained an afterthought the whole time. It's criminal, isn't it? I think the Crushers are possibly the club least affected by the verdict in that they were dead regardless of the outcome. Like They were broke, losing players. They were an embarrassing millstone around the ARL's neck by this point, and the Chargers were only slightly better off than that. But that is the basic state of the game. And now we're going to get to Saturday, October 5, where the papers were just full of intrigue and speculation. And this club going here and the ARL are about to fold within the next 72 hours. You know, everything was, was on the table at this point. The golden age of rugby league rumours. Oh, and just the talk about clubs jumping ship. That's what we're going to be spending the next little while talking about and it was out of control and just the confidence of the pronouncements even giving the time frame you know like ace are poised to defect within the next 72 hours you know like yeah <laughs> <laughs> i must have read about a thousand guarantees i know, I know. In, in that period <laughs> so there were crisis talks happening all over the place clubs meeting with other clubs clubs talking to news limited clubs talking to the arl the arl talking to Optus and Kerry Packer, and all of this was happening. There was a lot of intrigue, and it seemed that anything was up for debate. But I wonder how much of this was real panic within the clubs and how much was wild, baseless speculation from the media? Because the media were in an absolute frenzy. But what the media was saying was that the ARL was basically done. There would be multiple mergers within a week. There would be clubs going to Super League. It was all happening Super League executives had come out and said that they would only consider increasing to a 12-team competition, which meant that there were two spots up for grabs for ARL clubs. And for their part, the ARL club bosses, or many of them, were decidedly non-committal in the way they addressed their loyalty to the ARL. And reading all these articles, like you get a real sense that they could have gone. And when I was reading this, I was thinking like to myself at first, you know, well... You kind of made your bed at this point. You're with the ARL now. But I feel like it's easy to think that now in hindsight. But at this point, the threat really did seem existential and the death of the ARL was viewed as a real prospect. So the ARL had to do something about it. Uh, would you be shocked to learn that the first thing they did was to draw up a loyalty agreement for <laughs> their 12 clubs? I would not be shocked. <laughs> So these were handed out on the night of the court case. And you remember all the discussion we had about the legality of the loyalty agreement in our last episode. The ARL got around this in a really simple way, which is that the loyalty agreement was only for 1997. So by this token, I'm assuming that the annual agreements that they had to hand in to enter the competition hadn't been processed by October 1996. Which, that seems a bit late for a, a competition starting again in a few months. But that's where they were. So they handed out these agreements to get their commitment for the 1997 season. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that all of the clubs eventually signed. But the order in which they did is revealing. So Souths and the Chargers were the only clubs to sign those agreements without delay. 
the charges were effectively being run by the ARL at that point, so there wasn't much chance of them not signing. Souths were clinging to loyalty agreements for dear life throughout this period, so it, it makes sense that they would have signed them as well. But the rest of the clubs took on a bit of a wait-and-see attitude. Part of that was whether there'd be any money coming in from Optus. So this is a big part of the behind-the-scenes intrigue. We're going to cover it at a bit greater length later in the episode, but it needs to be said at the start that all of this essentially came down to whether Optus were going to come through with the money that would persuade the clubs to stay with the ARL. But again, with the media speculation, there was talk that by the time the Optus deal had been sorted, two of the ARL clubs would have already defected. And you just know there'd be club bosses hoping that they did go because all they would be thinking about was that means more money for them. So let's just take the time to go through the Super League options for the the clubs because I think there's some interesting things to come out of it. So firstly was Manly, which I just cannot get my head around how much talk there was in the papers of Manly potentially going to Super League. It seems ridiculous. It does. Like with Arco and Bozo... I just cannot fathom that it was ever even seriously discussed within the Manly boardroom. No, but you wouldn't think they'd make it up either, just purely make it up in the papers. So yeah. there's been some sort of talk. Yeah, yeah. It's just really strange. I think it comes down to the fact that a lot of people just didn't think the ARL were going to survive. So it was time for Manly as a strong club to cut their losses. But I just can't see it being a serious threat. Mm-hmm. Norths, it's a bit more nuanced because they'd come close in 95. They were perennial outsiders in the league. So you think it's kind of a genuine option there. And then on top of that, they were perfectly located geographically for Super League. So much about it made a lot of sense. But again, like with Manly, I don't think they ever really got close at this point. So uh, one of their directors came out and said that they were quite happy to sign the ARL loyalty agreements. They didn't feel any duress and they were, were happy to stick with the ARL. Tragically, he went on to say that they didn't want to sign with Super League because they didn't want to surrender control of their destiny. So worked out great for them there. The Roosters, we've talked about a bit, but it was in the, the fait accompli terms as well. You know, the <laughs> Roosters were going to go. And I think there is a chance they could have gone. So... The Roosters did meet with Super League and in John Rebo's account of the meeting, Nick Politis asked, what's the offer? So uh, the exact quote is, Nick Politis said, what extra can you give us? I said, hang on, we've just been in a war for the past 18 months. We've had 10 clubs make the ultimate sacrifice of commitment to us and have not wavered one bit. <laughs> Which is Rebo's rugby league mentality coming up against Nick Politis's business mentality. Because you remember that when the first court case went the ARL's way, Nick Politis was out in force talking about the Judases and how there's no place for them in rugby league anymore. Mm. You know, fast forward eight months and the wind blew a different way and Nick Politis knew he had to do the best for his club. So any talk of Judases, well, you know, it's, it's all just business. That's the difference. One guy genuinely loves finance, the other one's just pretending to love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the one sticking point was Phil Gould, who had been out in force against Super League, 
there wasn't a, a clear sense whether he would have gone or whether Super League would have accepted him. So if the Roosters went, it potentially would have been without Phil Gould. The guy's the human sticking point in life. <laughs> so St. George to Melbourne, that was the, the one that got talked about a great deal. This made a lot of sense to everyone involved. Even Melbourne politicians were welcoming the move because it was a name that went beyond rugby league. It's one of the great uh, what-ifs for me. That. Yeah, same. Like, especially as a Dragons fan, I couldn't have imagined a better scenario than what we got in the end. But I do think it's an interesting alternate reality, and, and I'm quite excited about that idea. Even though in public comments, they weren't exactly ringing endorsements of the ARL. So, so Brian Johnson, the CEO, said, St. George wants what's best for its supporters, players, and sponsors. We'll be emphasising to the ARL that a compromise should be a high priority on its agenda and will produce the best possible outcome for all parties involved. Privately, though, it doesn't seem that they really gave it serious thought. So Warren Lockwood said that they declined the offer to Melbourne and that was the end of that as far as they were concerned. So that leaves Parramatta as the team that really could have gone and their statement was even less positive towards the ARL than the Dragons was. So their official statement was, Parramatta is currently an integral part of the ARL. We wish to compete in a premier competition. We urge the ARL to initiate discussions with News Limited to ensure that rugby league continues to be a viable and competitive international sport. It's weird because they um, they sort of become the poster boy for the ARL. And that, I think, is ultimately what made the case for Super League so strong. They became the poster boy for the ARL by becoming the haven for ARL refugees and spending all this money on new players, getting the filthy four in and all the rest. So if you spend that much money on players, you don't want to be playing in the pub comp. Hmm. So I think Parramatta had real concerns about what it would mean for them if they stayed with the ARL. And as I said, all options were on the table. So Penrith had put feelers out for a merger, which at that point seemed like Parramatta's only Super League option. So they weren't being talked about as, you know, the fourth Sydney franchise. It was being folded into a, a Western Sydney merger with Penrith. But then surprisingly, and I think this may have something to do with the fact that more clubs didn't go or weren't really positive in talks with Super League, Parramatta were then offered a sole franchise. So that upset Penrith. So that shows you how close Penrith were to merging or, or how willing and open that, to that they were, that they were actually disappointed when Super League handed Parramatta the chance for a, a solo franchise. The idea that they want to run this premier comp and they've got these suburbs of Sydney. <laughs> yes, yeah, just yeah. makes me laugh. Yeah, I mean, it undersells Super League the fact that the Sydney games were played at Belmore Oval, Shark Park and Panthers Stadium, yeah. you know. So Parramatta were the last of the 12 clubs to sign the loyalty agreement. They held out for quite a while. Ultimately, it was the Optus money that got them in. So uh, Dennis Fitzgerald said, it's not a bidding war at all. Optus has put forward a very good package, which is acceptable to the Parramatta club. And so with that... They were all in. So they were the only clubs that had a real chance of getting a Super League spot or at least a Super League spot in a good position. But I do want to spend a bit of time talking about those weak clubs as well. So we've discussed Newcastle already. They were in a no-win situation. The ARL was on shaky ground. They were losing money and players. But if they'd gone to News Limited, 
all they'd be told is, yeah, well, you can join up with the Mariners, but just so you know, they're running the show and, you know, we'll take your best players, but that's about all you'll get. So it's surprising that the Knights administration actually discussed willingness to talk to the Mariners. So Ian Burnett said, we haven't approached them. There have been no direct discussions from their end. But if the parties do get together, it will happen above us and we'll be prepared to deal with the ramifications. What we really don't need for the long-term sake of the game is two competitions. And again, with them, it came down to the Optus money. So I think without it, the Knights, as we know them, are gone. But what it did was basically give them a short-term cash injection and security that allowed them the time to see which way the wind blew. And then the rest is history with 1997. With South and Balmain, something that happened earlier in the season is interesting. We didn't discuss it in our 1996 recap, but in May 1996, talk emerged of a three-way merger between the Roosters, Tigers and Rabbitohs. That would have been a handful to have three in the uh, mix. I'd like to see some examples of that working out in like world sport. Mm. It just seems untenable. With mergers, I don't get this part about it. It's like the fans only care about who's on the jersey, what's the name and, and what's the nickname and the jersey colours. The rest of it is just which board people will have say in power and jobs. Like the fans don't care about any of that. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like inside the club, they care about their split. They care about how many seats they get at the table. They care about their share of revenue. More often, it's their share of the loss. But regardless, it's what the fans care about is completely at odds with what the officials within the clubs are interested in. So the only way it works is to fold the three into a completely new entity, which I don't know if that would work, but I think it has a better chance than a three-way merger that's the, you know, Balmain City Rabbitohs or, or whatever, however you want to try to appease three sets of fans. But that's basically the idea of Super League, getting rid of these inner city yeah. clubs into a new one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm surprised how much media hype there was about this three-way merger because Politis made it clear from the start that the Roosters weren't interested. You can tell by his statement that he was a bit bitter after the Sydney City Saints debacle. He said, we had a go at that and we got burned. We've done our bit in that area, so bugger it. No one wants to merge. That's the bottom line. The only way we'll get rationalisation is for the ARL to take a hard line with the clubs that are not financial or not performing. Everyone talks about it, but no one wants to do it because of emotional and traditional reasons. We're always back at square one. You know? Yeah. A year worth of drama and then it's always back to the same issue. No one exactly. wants to merge and we need to merge. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the rare instances that Steve Turvey Mortimer got it exactly right with his statement about it. He said, I hear where to have a super club formed by an alliance comprising the Roosters, the Tigers and Souths. My experience tells me that they'll talk about it, but they'll never do it because there are too many nests to be feathered, too much pride to be stoked and too much power to be surrendered. Mm. Perfect. And that that's what it basically all came down to. So the Tigers were the driving force. They were at this point quite willing to consider all the options, whether that was relocating to the central coast or uh, to Melbourne or, you know, this merger. Maybe they consider the merger more because they had talks with the president of Gosford RSL about coming to an arrangement to move <laughs> to the central coast. 
the Gosford RSL general manager, Alan Portis, uh, said that negotiations were in an embryonic stage. He said, they want to come in with a 50-50 partnership, but they've got no dollars. How is it like a first grade rugby league club and you're getting rejected by Gosford RSL <laughs> for, for not, not having the cash? But how rugby league is it to say we want a 50-50 split? We're going to bring nothing. <laughs> 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 so it, it all kind of fizzed out so talks dragged on into august and basically it, it fell apart so one of the big issues that if the roosters did come on board they were going to be the dominant force and the tigers and south would basically get folded in so i think all parties got a bit scared off but after the fact the tigers were more circumspect and being realistic about the future. So I really liked this from Danny Monk. I think it's some candor that was sorely lacking throughout the war. Our reason for being is to provide a link for the community, to provide the people and particularly the youth in the area access to sports. That's how we started in 1908. And it so happened that we ended up as part of the premier competition. And that was great. But the problem is everyone looks at that as if it's the be all and end all, when that's actually only a small part of the reason we're here. What's happened over the years is that that has become the central focus. Now what we've got to do is ask ourselves why we're here and we've got to make sure it's a justifiable response. And the response cannot be just because. So what that means is that maybe we stay in the senior competition, maybe we merge, maybe we relocate, maybe we play Metropolitan Cup. It's just funny when you get these rare moments where club bosses actually talk about the reality and say they're willing to talk to this club and they're willing to do this. Yet when it comes down to it, it's just always so hard to get them together. I'm still amazed they got any mergers done at all. Yeah, yeah. To this day. Yeah, like ultimately it had to be shotgun weddings, but it seemed that the Tigers had this realisation at the end of 1996 and we'll cover it as we get towards the mergers and the reunification of the game. But, you know, it feels like they had their eyes on it for a while. But of the other clubs, there's not much to talk about at this point. So there's a lot going on with the Crushers, who were $9 million in debt, but there's too much of that to unpack in this episode. So a time will come when we'll cover their demise at greater length. But basically, the Chargers and the Crushers were both on life support. A merger between them was considered inevitable and their only chance at survival. Illawarra and West basically had no options at this stage. They just had to sit there and wait to see what happened. It surprises me that Illawarra was so down and out, given they're a one-team town. Yeah, they just seemed to never be able to get it together in terms of money or fans, really. Like, But they were not considered for Super League at first, and they always seemed to just be merger bait. But in all this talk about who was going where, and this club's jumping into Super League, and this club's moving to Melbourne, and these clubs are going to merge. I just wanted to highlight a line, um, this is another Mascord column, the next day, about the prospect of ARL teams defecting. Defecting would not be easy for any of the ARL teams, regardless of their financial position, because most of their players remain tied to the league. The players' loyalty contracts have not been overturned. If a club was to join Super League, it might be giving up all its players. This seems to me like a pretty significant hurdle to overcome for clubs jumping to Super League. You can't convince the fans to support a whole new roster of throwing together Super League rejects. There's just so many logistical issues that you're going to get 
by doing this without the players that like I don't think it was ever a realistic proposition. And so much ink was spilled over this. So many fait accompli pronouncements about clubs going. Surely the fact that, you know, journos like Mascot, I think Roy Masters might have mentioned the same thing in one of his columns. Surely the fact that this was being reported, that the players' loyalty agreements hadn't been voided, surely that would be enough to make the media frenzy calm down a bit and say, well, it's very unlikely that a club's going to be able to defect. You know, it's going to mean East going to Super League without Freddie, Para going without the Filthy Four. Like, those chances seem so slim that it should have been given more weight before writing all these, you know, Easter sign with Super League in the next 24 hours articles. That's a common sense approach, but in their defense, it was a time of just the first time for everything. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. And again, it comes down to the fact that we didn't know if there was going to continue to be an ARL. So I'll give them a break on that respect. But I also feel that this was a real point of journalistic failure in this story. So that was the basic path. So it was assumed within the ARL that the next step was that news would challenge those loyalty agreements. So Rebo came out and said that uh, if a club wanted to join Super League, they'd have to encourage its players to challenge their loyalty agreements and went on to say it'd be no use a club coming over without its players. It would just be a shell. And there was maybe a hint that News Limited would pick up that legal bill. So David Gallup, who, as a side note, this could be our first David Gallup reference. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Been a while coming. So he came out and said that Super League wasn't interested in challenging the players' contracts with their clubs, but only the ARL agreements. So basically, they weren't going to go to court with some player who decided that he wanted to jump to Super League. They were only interested in, you know, doing something that would either net them a club or, you know, some of the things that would have a significant impact for them. Meanwhile, the courts are going, oh, goody, more rugby league mess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm a legal expert now. I think there's a reasonable case to be made that players who wanted to challenge their loyalty agreements would have been able to successfully do so. I mean, you'd think the dozen players who were promised the Australian captaincy for a start <laughs> could could have filed a class action. <laughs> 13 captains on the field at once. But basically it would have meant another court case which would have dragged out throughout the 1997 season. So what happens? Does the club defect with the hope that their players will rejoin in 1998 and what happens to that player in the meantime does he have to sit out or you know maybe the club can grant an injunction but it's just such a tricky legal position to be in that it just makes it so unlikely and as it turns out the only player or the only big name player who could have had his loyalty agreement overturned and then be free to join a Super League club was Rod Wishart. Everyone else was bound to their club contracts. So basically it had to be the club going and the players challenging or it wasn't going to happen. And just as a side note, Rod Wishart uh, was asked about this and I love his negotiation skills. So he hadn't re-signed with the Steelers, but he said, it's pretty much cut and dried that I'll be staying with the Steelers. I love that so much about Rod Wishart. There's none of this, you know, oh, I'm at, you know, I love the club, but I've got to think of my family and this is my yeah. last big contract. It's just, well, I'm not going anywhere. So can we just sign this? No one um, thinks of their families more than professional athletes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It always involves personal greed and windfalls of cash for them, but they're thinking of their families at all times. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how it, it seems to be only at contract time that they, they really... <laughs> <laughs> but basically all of this intrigue, like so much of this war, was all for nothing because it was always going to come down to the pay TV side of things and what Optus was willing to bring to the party. So almost from the second the court decision came down, the ARL and Optus were locked in talks about a rescue package. And the next day, ARL bosses were out spruiking the fact that Optus were going to be there for the ARL. And so as was his style, Jeff Cousins was, you know, sticking solid behind the ARL. So there weren't going to be any compromise talks. It was going to be as it always was. And so perhaps not surprisingly, the ARL bosses were effusive in their praise of Jeff Cousins. So John Quayle came out and said, fair dinkum, he's done it again, this bloke. <laughs> I love the fact they just speak how they speak and don't put any airs and graces. I know. You know, I stand by my statement. Like, I blame Jeffrey Cousins for so much of this, but I understand where the ARL are coming from. You're going to be quite happy with the bloke throwing money for you you to burn at you on a regular basis and of course after dealing with Kerry Packer for so long we can maybe forgive the ARL at that so at this point Kerry Packer put in no extra money and then went on to renegotiate for the Super League free-to-air rights so he was sticking solid with the ARL so in the end it was a 120 million dollar rescue package announced that secured the services of all the clubs and seemed to put the ARL on a better footing and you know more able to Go it alone for 1997. In the wake of all this, Ken Cowley had given an account of the ARL situation, saying that Arthurson had no authority in the ARL because he can't make any decisions of consequence. He's always got to get the approval of Kerry Packer. Arthurson strongly refuted that, but then they asked him, well, if not Kerry Packer, does Optus run the ARL then? And Arthurson said, Optus Vision gave us the additional funding package with no strings attached. So no strings attached as long as Optus gets their six games a week and forget about any compromise that would have been in the best interest of the game. <laughs> but apart from that, absolutely no strings. <laughs> no strings to speak of there, mate. <laughs> Again, I don't want to be too harsh on the ARL as what else could they do, but it's just so emblematic of rugby league. Like how many decisions in the past 25 years have been about appeasing broadcasters and other commercial partners rather than the good of the game. Every single one? Yeah, <laughs> just about. So, I mean, that's the state of things, and, and I think we all know it. But the really interesting thing is what happened to that money. So a $120 million rescue package that was going to be distributed between the clubs, and you know that they were just, you know, buying flat-screen TVs, and they were spending it in their head from the second it was announced. <laughs> As it turns out, it was a hot issue of debate from the start. You know, the big questions, where was this money coming from and when is it going to get to the clubs? Whether Optus Vision had the money to give to the ARL came up for debate. And that was brought to everyone's attention by Seven Boss Kerry Stokes, who uh, was an Optus Vision shareholder, which just in itself. So Kerry Stokes, chairman of Channel 7, Channel 7 part owned by News Limited, He's a major shareholder 
in Optus Vision at the same time. Yeah. It's just insane. And then it gets crazier because he was in a court action with other Optus shareholders. Uh, and I don't know the nature of, of that, you know, dispute, but there was something to do with a $200 million bond that was part of this legal dispute. So Kerry Stokes was arguing that the bond was underwriting the ARL rescue package and went on to say, how could they commit funds they don't have? They must have financial difficulty. And how will they give the ARL $120 million? That's a good question. And why wasn't this a question being asked by more Optus shareholders? Yeah. So Optus lost $410 million in the 1996-97 financial year. You think a sizable portion of that would have been its rugby league investment. You just think this would have been questioned more? Yeah, I mean, that's got rugby league club financials written all over it. Yeah, I don't understand it at all either. But regardless, the speculation went on. And I think eventually a few more people did start asking those questions. And at regular points over the next year, there was talk of Optus reneging on that investment. So... When the ARL were refused leave to appeal the federal court decision at the end of November, there was talk in the press then that Optus would pull out of the deal. Mid the following year, the Optus chairman, uh, Ziggy Zikowski, was sacked from the job. Presumably that has something to do with the $400 million loss, but I, I, <laughs> I didn't get the exact reasonings for that. But at that point, it was viewed that Optus might cut their losses and adopt a different business model, one that doesn't involve bailing out rugby league clubs on an annual basis. <laughs> How did a phone company get involved? <laughs> it's just hysterical. So the ARL, to combat this speculation, did uh, what they've become very adept at and got Optus to sign a loyalty agreement for... <laughs> One day they're manufacturing handsets, the next day they're talking to a bloke <laughs> about second rollers. It's like, what happened? So the ARL got it in writing in mid-97 that Optus would live up to their end of the bargain and pay out the $120 million over the four years or however long the length of that deal was to be. And so a key part of the peace negotiations in 1997 about reunification was to work out how to look after the ARL and the ARL clubs and, you know, what money of this they were owed and if they weren't getting that from Optus, where would they be getting it? So at that point, the money trail kind of runs dead in my research. So I'm hoping when we pick up the story at the reunification times, I'll have a bit more insight into that. All we need to know at this point is that Optus came in, saved the day, and the washout is that no clubs jump or merge. And I love Arco's comment about the fact that everyone's stuck solid the news limited tactic was always to divide and rule spread stories about particular clubs being on the verge of jumping and so making other clubs nervous and vulnerable i'm proud to say that our clubs knock them back in every single case with st george lewd with the bait of a melbourne franchise and Parramatta, the last of them declared that they were sticking fast with the arl it's like i don't think loyalty really came into that decision at all yeah that's just false isn't it but basically by October 11, this had all been sorted and the ARL were in a lot stronger position than they were on October 4 and were able to go on with whatever was to come. And that still at this point could have involved compromise. And it feels a bit tedious 
to be discussing yet another round of failed compromise talks, but we're completists here. We've got to give the full context of the story. And compromise had been talked about throughout 1996. So there were talks from time to time between, say, you know, Nick Politis and Porky Morgan were good friends and they knew that something had to be done. So they were getting together on a regular basis. After the court case, there was talk of Lachlan Murdoch and James Packer getting together. So all these talks were going on with the idea that the current situation was untenable. And just as an aside, in the midst of all this, in mid-1996, Andrew Voss gave his vision for a reunited rugby league competition. So he named all the mergers he'd have and how many teams, all the rest. So I don't want to get into that. I just want to touch on the fact that it said, the Voss plan does not ignore the small print, even proposing that the league's new theme song should be The Right Time by the Hoodoo Gurus. Mm. So wrong song, but Andrew Voss on the money. So another way he was ahead of his time in terms of rugby league. But in the immediate aftermath of the court case, Super League were pretty adamant that there wasn't going to be a compromise. I, I said in our last episode that they were much more gracious in victory than they had been in defeat. But at the same time, they made it clear that it was going to be the ARL coming to their door and it wasn't going to be the other way around. It was going to be on their terms. For the ARL, they actually at this point had some cards to play because I think two comps was actually better for the ARL in terms of bargaining power, mm. especially when at this point the only other option was capitulation. But I found this funny that on the 9th of October, John Quayle was talking about the prospect of compromise and said, I think it's a matter for discussions. I think over the weekend, a number of them have taken place, you know, giving this optimistic view of a potential compromise. Once the Optus announcement had been made on the 11th, this was John Quayle. Look, we now have a 12-team competition. We have a financial package. Let's just get on with it. Nobody wanted there to be two competitions, but that's what the court wanted. Now's just the time to get on with things and deal with the situation we've been put in which I think is just symptomatic of the whole thing, you know. Talk about coming together when the future's uncertain. But once he got the money, it was like, well, screw them. Yeah. But I think um, two comps is the most rugby league way to handle it as well. Like just, you know, double down, burn the game into the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of spite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. And you could sense the frustration from, you know, various people within the game that this was going on. And even after all this... Nothing could be done to get the two parties together to avoid two comps. And I think this is as scathing as Ian Heads gets. With Jeffrey Cousins providing the wherewithal, the ARL has again shown it will not be done until the last drop of blood is drained from the body. <laughs> Good on you, Ian. So Ian was like a lot of people in the game in wanting the situation to get resolved. Within clubs, you had club officials like Gerald Ryan at Auckland talking about the fact that he really wanted to see compromise and that two comps wasn't going to be the answer. I really like this from Jeff Toovey. It went beyond the the Laurie Daly, they've just got to fix it. Uh, Jeff Toovey, at least, I think, realised that maybe the players did have a role to play. He said, Not playing should be considered by the players as a whole. It won't work if we're not unified, but it may be the only way to resolve this problem. Since the start, players have been viewed as money-hungry, happy to, to just cop the cash. Now it's our chance to show the fans we do care about the game. People will be so angry and disillusioned that if they haven't stopped watching the game already, then they soon will. It's quite thoughtful from Tooves. Yeah, but can you imagine after all this, the players then going on strike to get Super League and ARL to rejoin? 
I'm surprised they didn't. I really am. Even politicians got involved. So um, New South Wales Sports Minister Gabrielle Harrison was in talks to get the Super League and ARL together in a mediation talk chaired by Neville Rann. But Super League said no to that. And, you know, that was about as far as that went. And that was basically the end of the compromise talks. And everyone knew it was a bad idea. Everyone knew it was untenable, but it was just two cars careening off a cliff without any brakes and there was nothing that could be done. But an interesting thing is the fact that they knew there were going to be two comps. I think by, you know, late October, everyone had just made their peace with that. So then the talks moved to eventual compromise. So part of those talks focused on the idea of a Super Bowl, the winner of the ARL versus the winner of Super League. So that was seen as an obvious starting point in getting the two competitions back together. Major, major missed opportunity for mine still. Yeah, I agree. Like everyone knew that there, one way or the other, there was going to be one competition eventually. And yeah, I think it's a real lost opportunity. I mean, you even had John Quayle. His quote on the potential for a Super Bowl was, it sounds all right, doesn't it? So, I mean, if the most intransigent, stubborn, you know, bloke on the RL side is like, well, yeah, that sounds great. Like, you just feel they could have worked towards it. But there were a few logical or logistical challenges that, in the end, like, put a stop to it. So, basically, Super League had the World Club Challenge and Test Matches. It was just going to be hard on the calendar. God, we couldn't sacrifice the World Club Challenge. I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> the, um, what would have been funny would have been the um, scrutiny on the ref, though. Like, oh, man, he's, he's in Super League's pocket. They've called him offside, you know? Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> that's funny. It was... Uh, it was a Danny Weidler column talking about the prospect of a Super League. It said that the game was unlikely to happen in the near future for two main reasons. First, because neither side would want to live with the loser's tag. And second, because there's no way they could agree on a referee for the game. I'm just thinking, like, for a game that's hemorrhaged cash to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, you could have filled a stadium with 80,000 people yeah, and got yeah. a lot of eyeballs on the TV. Yeah. There's money left on the table. Yeah, and I think the most obvious point is the the origin of the Super Bowl, which is exactly what was happening here. Two rival competitions meeting in this one game of the year, which eventually led to the two competitions coming back together and becoming the NFL as we know it today. So yeah. it was all there in history that it just seemed so obvious. But yeah, it's one of the real lost opportunities of the war. But I feel there were going to be issues as well. And over the course of late 1996 into 1997, you saw like a clearing of the decks on both sides that maybe it was all coincidental in timing, but it kind of like signified that compromise was on the way. So you had John Quayle resigning, Arthurson following him shortly after. Ian Frickberg came in as a News Limited executive that was going to sideline John Rebo a bit and, you know, pave the way for him going to Melbourne. Jeff Cousins resigned at Optus because his wife was terminally ill and he needed to care for her. Porky Morgan leaves the Broncos. And so suddenly within this like six month period, like basically all the major players from the war were gone. And so you could get this new blood in to meet together and talk. And obviously we're going to discuss this a lot more throughout 1997. But this was like one of the early signs that the two comp thing was, you know, just a bridging period. There was that feeling in the air through 97 that it was a fait accompli that we're going to merge. But um, just hearing all those 
people that caused all that damage just skipping off into the next uh, corporate bloody yeah. thing. It just annoys me so much. Yeah, you're right. And I don't blame like Arco and Quail. Arco in particular had given everything he had and you know he needed to step away. Rebo, like, I don't think there was going to be a public acceptance of a reunited rugby league with John Rebo at the helm. You know, him moving away was like genuinely for the good of the game. And he moved into a, a good position for him at Melbourne. So it's more just the money men that it's all a game to them. Yeah. Well, I honestly feel Rebo has come out of this with the most unfair tarnishment because he deserves a lot of it, but his name's synonymous with this now, forever. And there's a lot of other guys that deserve more hate than him. He's, yeah, like, I think he just, I feel he was gaff prone in terms of his public statements. <laughs> I think it needed a, a smoother operator. <laughs> Someone that liked finance but didn't like gaffs. Yeah. <laughs> but Rebo went back to the Super League offices, which were opposite Hyde Park, a very modern building. In an article in the Herald comparing the Super League office with Phillips Street, Matthew Kidman wrote that at Phillips Street there's photographs of all their past champions and memorabilia and a real sense of rugby league history. At the Super League buildings it was new and flash. There was ET, there was Mal Meninga, there was Super League's 18-foot skiff, which I wasn't able to find much more about. So if anyone has the scoop on... Super League's yacht. I'd love to know more about that. You remember when 18 foot skiffs was the new Iron Man? It was like the biggest, <laughs> yeah. the biggest weirdo sport on TV. For it was pretty much a direct replacement, right? I feel like one year you had the Iron Man on the Saturday Arvo, and then the next year it was 18 foot skiffs. <laughs> Who is going? You know what? Came for the skiffs or something? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but so in that office. You had the Super League staff, including Rebecca Wilson, who basically had that whole year to prepare. And Rebo and Rebecca Wilson and others talk about the fact that that year gave them time and gave them the ability to put the competition together that they wouldn't have had if they won the first court case and suddenly it was all on and Super League started in 1996, which I I don't know. I want to get your opinion on this. On one side of things, they were very lucky. Like, if you consider how half-baked the final product was in 1997, like, how bad would it have been in 1996? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think they did remarkably well, given that it was thrown together, the presentation at least. Well, I'm worried about how much thought actually went into the presentation. They had the year to do that. They were talking about the entertainment that they were going to have. And (laughs) so this is a Rebecca Wilson quote. If we'd started in 1996, booking acts would have been a nightmare. But now we can talk about seriously good international acts and be seriously in the hunt for them. So you had a year to be seriously in the hunt for these, you know, seriously impressive international acts and you end up with Chubby Checker. I mean, I don't know how busy Chubby was in (laughs) in 96, but... (laughs) When you're in a bidding war with Rudy Hill RSL... (laughs) (laughs) This El Dorado in Rugby League administration for entertainment. Yeah. This mythical entertainment that's going to that's gonna fill stadiums. We only want to watch the game. No one cares about Birds of Tokyo. 
Well, this... Doing three songs in a windy stage. Uh, I saw Culture at Belmore Oval in 1994, and I beg to differ. They made all the difference. But... <laughs> <laughs> but this was my counter to that. Would it have been the case that the shorter turnaround may have actually helped them? So not having the time to put together an expansive world club challenge and less focus on these great international acts and more focus on like, right, let's go. Let's get this competition happening. Like it it may have actually worked in their favor to have less time to think about all these grand ideas. I'm a subscriber to that theory. You got less time for rugby league minds to percolate in uh, insanity and then uh, <laughs> you just get the football on the ground. <laughs> so that was Super League. They were ready to go and we're going to talk a lot about Super League in our next season. But now let's look at the ARL and what their future held. So they were left with no choice but to really push hard on the fact that they were the traditional competition that was going to be weighted heavily towards Sydney, which for obvious reasons they had no other option but to go down that path. Jeffrey Cousins was touting it as not a problem. He said, I've spent most of my life looking at TV ratings. I've been doing it for 30 years now, and I know what rates. It ain't Perth playing Auckland. Because, <laughs> yeah, you, you remember all those ratings poison matches between Brisbane versus Canberra in the 90s? <laughs> Yeah, what rates is uh, the block and <laughs> 20 to 1? <laughs> but at least Jeff Cousins was selling his product, and I can't blame him for that. I think Alan Jones went a bit over the top with his statement. He said this was just after Parramatta had announced that they were sticking with the ARL. The ARL, with the Parramatta decision, have returned to an almost exclusive Sydney competition, hopefully promoting almost tribal rivalries of an old-fashioned variety, the created standing room only at the SCG in the 60s and 70s. There'll be teams from geographical divisions of Sydney. They'll have good administration and good players and the ability to bring back traditional supporters. The decision last Friday may well have been the best thing for rugby league in some time. Talk about rose coloured, Jesus. I love that standing room only at the SCG in the 60s and 70s. What about the 3,000 people that were turning up in the 80s? Yeah, the propaganda of the tribal rivalries. Yeah. It goes way too far. And I don't know how you could possibly make that statement at the end of 1996. Being the football director of Souths who had had like, what do we say, seven games under 5,000 or, or something ridiculous in that season. Like it was clear that the, that tribal thing was, if it ever was true, it was certainly not true at this point in time. But interestingly, Jones's old team, Balmain, had gone back to being Balmain. So the Sydney Tigers experiment was over. They ditched Parramatta Stadium for Leichhardt. And I think this was largely coincidental. Like, I think it's more that it just, the fans didn't like it. No one was going to Parramatta Stadium. Everyone was still calling them Balmain. So they might as well just go back to what worked. But it's just really interesting that it happened at this time when the ARL was really leaning in to the tradition. Suddenly you had a foundation club return to its spiritual home and its traditional name. But also, I mean, this tribal thing, it's like the knockabouts in inner city Redfern, you know, were no longer there. Those multi-million dollar uh, terrace houses owned by finance consultants you know it's like yeah 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 and it's gonna gonna get worse you know so yeah there's no future in it. And yeah and the ARL had trumpeted that with bringing the four new teams in for 1995 
So again, it's Alan Jones. So there's always going to be, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, something obnoxious. And really, it was the only card they had to play. But leaning heavily into the tradition probably helped the ARL in terms of legacy by like really hammering that home at every opportunity. It was much easier to sell 1997 as a continuation, as the official season for 1997. And, you know, that makes the Super League season a footnote. I remember watching both comps as a kid, and I still only wanted to watch good teams. I like watching Manly, I like watching North, Newcastle. Didn't matter that they were ARL, but I didn't want to watch Balmain, you know, Souths putting out substandard teams, you know? Yeah, and... And, and on the other side, I didn't want to watch North Queensland, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, within the two comps, you had about 10 good teams, and the fact that half of them weren't playing the other half was going to be a big problem. But that's all for future discussion. We have to leave this episode and this series on a pretty sour note, and that was, you know, the game had never been in a worse position. So... It's quite heartbreaking Jack Gibson being quoted on everything that was happening. He said, No one cares anymore. And whether it's sport or whatever it is, you've got to have people caring. This whole thing's been a bonanza for everything but rugby league. The game can't recover. But I'm gonna give the last word to Steve Mascord, who wrote about who wrote about the court case with a note of optimism. So I'm going out on this just for a vision of what could have been, or you know, maybe the best case scenario that was Never going to happen, but, you know, there was some hope at this period in 1996. He wrote, As the turbulent month gets more turbulent, we're once again close to a pretty good outcome for rugby league. A national competition, the Sydney mergers everyone always thought were necessary, the sort of international media exposure others would kill for, and the backing of a media empire. Admittedly, the depth or denigration of traditional sports administration is sad and regrettable, but the law says it's legal. Heavens above, if things developed a certain way over the next couple of months, we might even be able to sit back and look at the torment of the past two years as a necessary evil. Nice and positive, Steve. I think that speaks of what's been evident like all throughout our series and, and I'm sure will continue to be evident next season, and that's just the sheer amount of missed opportunities and the number of ways that things could have gone a different way that could have been beneficial for the game. Agree. I tend to think of the optimism reflecting on this series, Series 2 of the RLD Super League War, just the unbreakable spine of Rugby League. We're going to talk about it next year, how bad 97 was. To come back in uh, 1998, the NRL rising like a phoenix from the ashes, it's Rugby League's unbreakable spirit. Yeah, we survived the Super League War, we survived the Raiders Aussie male jerseys, we're still here. Still feeling the effects of that, <laughs> But that's where we are. So that brings us to the end of our second season. It's not exactly the season we planned. It, it's been a, a hard year internally and at the world at large. So we didn't get through everything we thought we were going to. But the positive to that is my research is actually quite a bit ahead of the game for next season. So hopefully we'll be able to deliver uh, on a more regular basis next year. But I uh, want to thank everyone for all your support, so much great discussion, and I don't know, I'm really proud of what we've put out, so I hope everyone's enjoyed it as well. well I would like to thank you on behalf of the listeners, mate, because your research in this series has gone up another level from the uh, already amazing season one, so I'm just so excited for season three, yep. and um, we're going to end on a happy note there at least. <laughs> <laughs>
And got to give a special mention to our Patreons. So we started our Patreon at the start of this year. And honestly, it's overwhelming the way people have responded to that and jumped on board. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, fantastic. The ultimate loyal um, listeners. And uh, yeah, we're going to put a whole lot more stuff over the break on the Patreon. Some chats between you and I, some interviews and some uh, exclusive content there. So yeah, we'll, we'll catch you on the Patreon, guys. Yeah, so apologies, it's been a bit quiet on that front lately. I've really had to focus on getting these last couple of episodes ready. But we've had so much fun on the Patreon this year and hope to continue the chat next year. So yeah, just wanted to thank everyone for that support. So yeah, so I'll get stuck into the books again. And next time we talk, we'll be previewing season 1997 so uh we'll look forward to that next year thank you for all your support again please let us know what you thought of this episode or anything else we've talked about and we will speak to you soon toodaloo Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.